Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this Survivor Stories series episode, our guest is Alyssa, a survivor of sexual violence, childhood rape, and sexual assault by multiple offenders. She took her case to court and won not once, but twice. We speak with Alyssa today about her experience as a survivor of sexual violence and how it is different from other forms of abuse, how her trauma has impacted her, what accountability looks like, and what role forgiveness, community, and feminism plays in her healing and recovery journey. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. It's amazing. I want to start with the fact that you're you're conducting this interview under a pseudonym, because currently in Australia, where you're based, there is a court situation where survivors of sexual violence are under gag order, essentially, from speaking out publicly about their experience. So let's start there. What does the law or the policy actually say? Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a situation for survivors. So basically what happened is our state government in Victoria uh, was tinkering with one bit of our legislation around suppression orders and they kind of got tunnel vision and didn't do their due diligence in terms of consultation and looking at who would actually be affected and what the outcomes of this would be. And in trying to correct one bit of legislation that would make things a bit easier in one respect, they've ended up with this, for lack of a better word, I'm this clusterfuck of a situation. Sorry for the swearing. And it's now Judicial Proceedings Reporting Act, which basically means that for a survivor of sexual violence to publicly speak out, they can't use their own name. And you actually face up to four months in prison or jail and a fine or a combination of the two. And if a media outlet say like uh, any of our television broadcasting networks, radio, what have you, even if it's a podcast, if they violate that and they publish a real name without a court order, they're liable for a fairly hefty fine as well. So that essentially means you don't have the right to your own voice in Victoria, in my state. You have to apply to the court for the right to tell your story if, when, and how you choose. So we're currently going through that. Okay, so let me get this straight. If you were to move to another province in Australia, would you have the right if you're outside of Victoria? No, so it applies to cases where there's a conviction secured in the state of Victoria. So without going into too much more detail there, that means I'm gagged from speaking because I have convictions within Victoria. And you said that the intention was not to gag survivors of sexual violence. But now that this impact has happened, what are the people who propose this policy, what are they doing to rectify it, if anything? That's a really good question. I wish I had a really good answer for you. It's been it's been a survivor-led movement to hold the government to account here, which has been initiated by a journalist in Melbourne, Nina Fennell, with the Let Us Speak campaign. And 
it's been incredible. So we are really going hard at the government and saying you need to be more transparent and accountable. Personally, I've had several interactions with our Department of Justice. I met with them last week and we had a very long conversation about all of the errors, not just in the law itself, but also in how they handled the public relations aspect of when it did come in out into the media and how awful that had been and letting them know that essentially the government had gaslit survivors and knowing that young girls and boys and you know, people were going to be watching this and feeling like they couldn't come forward and report because they were going to be gagged. What was the point? Really undermining all of the work that so many survivors and our police have done in encouraging people to actually come forward and report. So what is the impact of this new legislation on the convicted perpetrators? Are they allowed to speak? Oh, it's a field day for them. Um, And part of the reason for that is because in the process of obtaining a court order, somehow, and we don't actually have transparent reasoning why, and this is something that we've demanded to know from our judges, is that perpetrators are being notified and even asked for their views on this. So it, it's it's fantastic for them. It really gives power back to them and takes away from the survivor, which is really not okay. So as far as I'm aware, perpetrators are free to speak to the media. There's very little holding them back, except that Australia has really strong defamation laws. And that would be the only concern I'm aware of that they'd have. So from an outsider's perspective, this seems like blatant sex discrimination, um, especially if most survivors of sexual assault are women. And if those women aren't allowed to speak and the men who are convicted of these crimes are, it seems like it's an issue that should be of national importance to fix. What is the you know, highest level of government doing about it, if anything? That's such a good question. It's in in the context of Australia as a whole, we've had amazing progress in terms of um, ungagging survivors. So in several of our states, we actually had long-standing entrenched laws that prevented survivors from publicly speaking out. And Nina Fennell actually run some really successful campaigns in the Northern Territory and also in Tasmania, all within the last 18 months. And she got those laws revoked, amended, so that survivors could actually speak out. So they never had the right to speak before, which she was able to, through public pressure and public campaign, get the government to act on. But in Victoria, the situation's a bit different. So in Victoria, we're kind of, there's a perception that we're quite progressive. We're kind of, I suppose, the equivalent of California. (laughs) We're seen as a very um, progressive kind of state. We had the right to speak prior to this law coming in in February of 2020. So this is actually like a revocation of our rights to speak. And it's, it's just really weird because each state and territory is sort of left to their own devices as to what they do here. There's not really a federal law that governs it. So our federal government doesn't want to get involved. That's unfortunate. It sounds so much like the U.S. where there's federalism and every state gets to determine, you know, its laws with regard to crimes and how they define them and what the consequences are. And so prior to this new law, 
you were a very active voice in the sexual violence, sexual assault community and advocating for survivors to speak out. And you were very vocal in your own experience, uh, speaking out about your own experience. Um, so what was the, the immediate impact to you physically or emotionally when you heard about this? Yeah, so I need to give a bit of context as to why this hit me as hard as it did. So I reported some experiences that I'd had as a child. I reported those uh, in 2017. And since 2017, uh, literally actually I think from this month maybe, I have been going through the legal system, the justice system, very slowly making our way through it. And really we only got resolution this year in 2020. So when I say resolution, I mean, I made my reports, gave statements, an investigation was done, and it was determined that there was enough evidence for us to actually go to court. And we got to the committal hearing stage in January, and we had a, where they pled guilty. And then we went to a plea hearing, which is where they basically get to say, please have mercy, don't sentence them too harshly. Here's why. That was in May of 2020. And then a week after the plea hearing, quite unusually, we had the sentencing. So very, very fast turnaround because of uh, COVID-19. My city's in one of the hardest lockdowns globally <laughs> as this was happening. So by mid-May, I was finally allowed to talk about my experiences as a whole. And that was amazing for me because for so long, I hadn't been able to tell anyone. So in Victoria... And quite commonly across Australia, I'm not sure if this applies in other countries, but you're not allowed to really talk about an ongoing criminal case just so that you don't jeopardize it in any way, shape or form. So I couldn't actually even tell my partner, my family, they knew it was going on and I could tell them, oh, look, I got an update from the police today, but I couldn't tell them, I couldn't tell them my story. And that was really hard. And that was a trauma in and of itself. So come May like the mid-May of this year, it was a huge relief to finally be able to sit down with my partner, who, by the way, has witnessed me on the worst days when this has been the absolute hardest. And he was finally able to really understand what had happened. And he came with me to court. And the first time he heard details about my case was in the courtroom from the judge, from the solicitors, reading out statements, reading out all the things that they have to do. That was the first time. And at the same moment, he was also confronted with the fact that we were sitting in the room with the perpetrator, um, just, just metres away from us. So it was quite full on for him and for me. And to finally feel like I had my voice and I had started doing interviews and started to speak out. And then less than six weeks after court, I got wind of this law and was starting to freak out. <laughs> And within three months of court finishing, I was notified that the perpetrator was actually applying for an exemption from our child sex offender registry. So they had been sentenced to life on this registry. And within three months, they had applied for an exemption. And effectively, what that would mean at that point, if they were successful, they would have no repercussions, really. They would have one day a month for 18 months that they had to dedicate to community services, and that was it. I'm really sorry to hear about that. I mean, it's it sounds devastating that you got this very positive outcome in May and then so soon after had to shift your 
your ability to continue to speak out and and I'm guessing it's part of your healing process is to be able to speak out and be fully transparent about what you've been through with your family and community. So I, I'm wondering with regard to this perpetrator, you were talking about sentencing. Who is actually advocating for lower sentencing? You're talking about the defendant's attorney, I'm guessing, or are there other people who are advocating for that too? So what I find really interesting about how the legal system works in Australia that I take issue with is the fact that if you're a defendant, you can submit character references You can, and, and they can be from anybody. And he had character references from everybody, from all of his friends, uh, family, family, friends, other people that he was connected with in the thing, uh, in, in the community. He had psychologists and really the other thing that he had going was he had started to participate in therapy particularly to deal with court and to try as a a strategy as well to get his sentence mitigated. He'd engaged in five sessions of therapy between January and May, so one a month, champion, good job, (laughs) and was apparently starting to unpack his level of accountability and responsibility and what was going on. But he was not anywhere close to actually being accountable and responsible yet. But the judges look at that and go, oh, look at you. You're a good bloke. You, you've put yourself in therapy. It's at your own expense. You champion. I'm going to knock some time off or make it a bit easier for you. We really have a system in Australia where our judges look at putting people in prison as the absolute last resort. And I understand that because jail is not a good place to be for anybody. You don't want to send people there and then they come out a far more violent person than they were going in. But having said that, if you're not going to send a perpetrator of sexual violence and very serious sexual violence to jail, even if it is 15 years after the fact or 20 years after the fact, that sends a very strong message to survivors about their worthiness and whether or not they're going to be actually taken seriously. Okay, let's let's unpack that step by step because there's so much there that is relevant in the US as well. The first is what would have been the maximum sentencing had he received it? So what they were charged with actually carries uh, per charge 10 plus years. If you take it li- if you take it literally. Okay, so you could either a judge could basically say we you know, if you get 10 years, we can add it or make it served con- concurrently. Yes. Okay. And does the judge have, obviously, from what I'm hearing, the judge has a discretion to give less than 10 years? Yeah. So we have a trend in Australia, and I think you've probably seen this in a lot of Western countries where prisons are overcrowded. They really don't want to send them there. So if we can, if they can put them in community corrections programs, which is quite literally, and I have checked this out, picking up trash or scrubbing graffiti then they'll put them there. But that's not really a deterrent. So what did he get as a sentence? So they were sentenced to 18 months of community corrections, 200 hours of community corrections over 18 months. Now, the judge decided that 50 hours of that would be dedicated purely to therapeutic interventions so that they could participate in uh, one-to-one and group therapy, so men's behaviour change programs, that kind of thing. And they were made a registered sex offender for life. 
in my state in Victoria, every state and territory in Australia has a slightly different, they're all basically and essentially the same, but they, they do have some nuances about how this happens. But in Victoria, if you meet a certain criteria, then regardless of what crime you've committed, bang, you're on the register. And that's it. That's that's it. Except in my case where they were able to apply and I can say they were very successful in applying for this and are no longer on the registry. In less, how much time is that? That's less than three, four months. In less than three months from set, from the last date we had in court, which was sentencing, they were on the registry for three months and then they were off it. And so you're saying that there was one perpetrator that was convicted or more than one? In this particular case, it was just one. Did he meet the criteria for being removed from the registry? On a technicality, yes. So we have some very loose criteria, which is part of a a bigger issue that I'm working with um, some politicians around looking at, hang on, you could fly a jumbo jet through this and... I mean, that's a problem. (laughs) Um, So basically the criteria is that you have to have not been convicted of any other criminal things. So even if it's shoplifting, you have to have been uh, within a certain age range. So you cannot have been more than 19 years old. Um, So you could be 19 years and 11 and a half months when you committed the offence. So And you can't be any younger than 18 years old. Um, So it is designed for those 18, 19-year-olds who, as I believe our government would like to put this, make mistakes (laughs) so that their whole lives aren't ruined by it, Um, which I I can understand in one sense, but also you still need to be able to send a very strong message that the behaviour they've engaged in is not acceptable. In terms of the eligibility for being able to apply, not whether they meet the eligibility to be removed from the sex registry, is there a set of criteria where you have to have served X number of months or years before you're even eligible to apply? Absolutely none. Um, So you could apply the next day, literally, from when you were sentenced. Yes, absolutely. You have to, I mean, I think you've got to actually be on the registry first to be exempted from it. So you have to be read, you have to be on the registry within 48 hours of sentencing. And we have the Department of Corrections who organize all of that with perpetrators, but you, you have to be on it to be exempted from it, which is, you know, that's easily organized. And then, yeah, it's just a matter of, you know, they have a set period that they have to apply for it within. So there's a window that has to be done within six months of sentencing. Um, And once that's done, I mean, if you miss the window, you miss the window. And this is a very new law as well in my state. So when I found out about this, so the only way I knew that this was actually happening is because a member from the sex offender registry office called me one afternoon and said, hey, look, do you know this person? You know, we're aware of, you know, your court case with them. Um, just wanted to let you know that they're applying for an exemption to be off the sex offender registry. And I was so upset and taken aback and shocked that I screamed and cried and hung up the phone. Um, and what basically took place from that point on was this enormous fact-finding mission because, first of all, this was a really new law that had come in just a couple of years prior, and no one had really tested it or worked with it. No 
what I what I found out is that none of our publicly accessible legal bodies were aware that this was a law. They didn't know how to work with it and they did not want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And what was the reason for that? Why didn't they want to go near it? Part of it is because they had no idea how to work with it. So one of the reasons I was actually given by several community legal organizations is that they just did not have the professional expertise to help me. And the Office of Public Prosecutions in my state, they their job is not to work for me in this case. It, this case, te- this bit technically doesn't actually involve me. It's not a criminal matter. It's a civil procedure, similar to <laughs> kind of like, you know, a dispute with your neighbor about a fence or a tree <laughs> is how they're treating it, which is really, really awful and really disrespectful to, I think, what the perpetrator's actually done. Would it be okay for me to ask a little bit about the nature of the crime that he committed? Of course you can. Was this person a a student? Were you both students? Because if it was committed between 18 and 19, then I'm assuming that there's some connection to school. I had met this person by accident on a family camping trip. And it just so happened, you know, I think when you go camping, there's a bit of camaraderie between the people at different campsites. You share firewood, for example, or if you run out of walk clean drinking water, you share that kind of stuff. And that's how we had met. They were based in the next campsite over from us. That's how I met him. And I was 13 years old at the time that I met them. And They assumed initially that I was a year or so older than what I was because the women in my family develop a bit quicker (laughs) than most. And what basically ensued was a really coercive relationship. Well, I'm not even sure. I don't have a better word than relationship, but basically I suppose entanglement is maybe a better word where my parents had allowed me to date them, but and they were uncomfortable with it, but they didn't quite know how to stop it. And that relationship escalated very, very quickly. So within a couple of weeks, it went from telling me what clothes to wear, and they were clothes that provided what they called easy access to body parts, to actually those sort of coercive, you know, those threats that to most people might seem quite benign, but it's the look in the eye or it's the the inflection in the voice that is that is frightening and really terrifying and um you know they were 18 years old i thought i was so lucky to have a boyfriend that was 18 years old and had a car and could drive and i used i i did brag at some point i think to my friends at school i was like he could buy us alcohol if we wanted to <laughs> not that he ever did but there was a really serious power imbalance there and they were quite, what's the word? The judge, the judge said that they had bullied me and I don't agree with that term because it fails to recognize very clearly in my statement, the coercive aspects of what took place, you know, where it was like, if you don't do this, I'm going to do that. I do want to give an example of what this looks like. Many times they pick me up from my house and we drive, they drive me somewhere. I didn't know the layout of the suburbs that we were in. I, weren't, I wasn't familiar with them. And they would drive to a really isolated spot, turn all the lights off in the car, 
and they would basically say, I want you to perform oral sex. And if you don't, I'm going to kick you out of the car. Also keeping in mind, I'm not ancient. I promise I'm still under 30, but this was like in the age before mobile phones were becoming something that every teenager had. (laughs) So this was like at the height of when Nokia 3315s and 3310s was, was the thing with mobile phones. And I didn't have one. I had no idea where I was and it would be like nearly midnight. There were no houses around. I didn't know how to get back to the main road. I didn't, you know, literally to me in the middle of nowhere and being told if you don't perform these acts, then you can get out of the car and walk home. Yeah. What do you do in that situation? So when you were talking about your parents being unwilling, reluctant, but still capitulated to the situation, I guess, to the relationship, it sounded a little bit like he, they were being groomed as well. What kinds of behaviors or interaction did this person have to convince your parents to let him see you? They were very attentive. So they'd ring after, they knew when I got home from school and they would ring almost within a like five minutes because I used to get home from school at about the same time every day and sometimes I'd take a bit longer because I'd be you know talking with my friends about the very important issues of the day which was usually to do with Justin Timberlake and they would ring within like this five or ten minute window as soon as they knew I would have gotten home from school and my parents really kind of they were unsure and uneasy about the age gap and Having said all that, they have their own trauma histories and I don't know that they had the skills to actually be able to articulate what they were feeling and to be able to actually understand what they were feeling as well and to see around those corners, um, even though they were adults, I don't know that they actually at the time had the skill set to do that. So did you have those skills at any point? Like did you acquire them through your friends or through school or some other source? It took me until 2017 to really start to understand what had happened. I didn't fully understand that I had been sexually abused for a period of time by this person. I knew something had happened, but I didn't understand it. I couldn't make sense of it. And this is part of a much larger issue globally is so many women, so many survivors don't actually understand that they've been violated because we are taught through media and and culture that rape and sexual abuse looks a certain way. It's not actually like that in real life. I mean, sure, stranger danger, rape does happen, but it's so rare. Like it's far more common that it's actually a teacher or a parent or someone in a position of some sort of authority in a child's life you know, whether that is a partner or someone else. Someone that the victim already knows. Yeah, we know that that is far more common. Okay, so in terms of what gave you that consciousness, was it a process? Was there an event? Was there an individual that contributed to helping you develop that consciousness of what happened to you, that you were violated? Yeah, so there were like two big things that happened for me, which was... um. I moved in with my partner in 2013 and we we're all very excited. It's the first time either of us had lived with a partner and we're like, oh, it's going to be domestic bliss. It was not domestic bliss to start with. Um, 
And I started to really deteriorate in my mental health and I didn't actually understand what was going on. And that was very frightening for me was feeling like I was actually going crazy and needed to be institutionalized because what on earth was going on with me. And as it transpired, I had a complete mental health breakdown. I suppose what we could call the first wave of PTSD. All of these memories just came pouring out of me and I could not stop it and I could not control the symptomology. I didn't understand the symptomology. In Australia, our mental health system is woefully underfunded and under-resourced. So accessing the education and the help to actually manage that was really difficult. Very lucky that I have a family member who works in mental health and they were very, very supportive in pointing me towards resources and just incredible, incredibly supportive in general. So that was sort of the first bit. And that was, that took me years to be able to unpack the memories and understand the symptomology and learn how to crisis manage myself. And then in 2017, I was working in a contact center and I was just having, you know, as much as I had learned to crisis manage myself, that doesn't mean I was very good at it. (laughs) Um, Because sometimes the anxiety and all of that is too much to overcome with a mindfulness or meditation practice. And I was having panic attacks every single day. Like I was not able to go to work for two or three days a week because the anxiety was so intense. And I had had a panic attack on the way to work one day. So I had turned around and gone home and I caught the train home. And I started listening to a podcast that was by Victoria Police on the way home. And it changed that that changed everything for me because it was a podcast dedicated to debunking the myths about sexual violence and the changes to the law in Victoria and what that meant and how you know what the standard of being is is for being treated by police. Like that you should be treated with respect. And if you're not, this is what to do. And It was a really awesome podcast that was done with a lot of dignity and respect. They spoke to real survivors and they went through a lot of different things. So they spoke about what does grooming look like? What are common things that perpetrators tell survivors um, so that they don't come forward and report? And that for me was like an oh shit moment. So I cried the whole train trip home, which was 40 minutes. And then instead of actually coming home, I found myself standing in the police station, which is very close to my house, and reporting and and saying to them, I think I need to report some sexual assault. Can I talk to someone, please? And that was one of the hardest sentences I've ever had to say, because for me, it was just, it's the first time that I knew, or at least I felt empowered, that they would take me seriously. I had tried to report it before. But the laws in Victoria had basically said, look, there's a statute of limitations. You're out of time. There's nothing we can do to help you on your way. And this time I knew that they couldn't do that. And if they they tried to turn me away, I was going to say, look, I know that you can't do this now. I know the law's changed. (laughs) So you can call whoever you need to call, but we're going to sit down and have a conversation. So even after you heard that podcast episode where they addressed what you said were myths around sexual violence, what to expect. So I'm guessing one of them is the fact that police don't often believe and that you're victim blamed and, you know, all of that. You still had the courage to go to the police knowing that you might confront that as a response. Yeah. And I really, 
I want to say that I actually, not everyone is fortunate to have this, but I had a really positive experience that time reporting. I was immediately linked with detectives who spoke to me about what my options might be, answered any questions that I had, and they resourced me. So they gave me an advocate and the advocate linked me in with solicitors, with a really amazing therapist who I saw every week for two, two years who changed my life and was a huge help in the healing and recovery process and, and taught me a lot about trauma as well. What did you learn about trauma that helped you in your healing? She taught me that it was very individual. So what works for me was not going to work for someone else or parts of it might work for them, but not all of it. So she taught me that it was very individual. It was also the feeling that what I was going through wasn't new. It wasn't an isolated incident. It was actually very common for survivors to go through these almost stages of grieving. The psychoeducation for me was invaluable because I didn't understand what I was going through and I couldn't, I couldn't put it into words. I didn't have the language skills to do that. So learning about things like how the amygdala works, learning about the freeze response and, and how to combat that and embed that in a daily routine and practice so that I'm not, you know, off with the fairies more often than not. She was really, really invaluable and she was very no bullshit. She was very open and, and, you know, it's hard, I think, to find the right therapist a lot of the time. And I was very lucky that I found, you know, I was linked with her and it, it worked so well. So I was recently panelist in a trauma episode for a podcast. And one of the questions that I was asked was, uh, what is the prerequisite or the order for healing, empowerment or restoration? And I actually said none of those things because I think the prerequisite for me to even heal or to be empowered is to have a consciousness about my experience. And it sounds like you might have that same perspective that this therapist that you were working with helped provide you a consciousness about framing your experience so that you could have a narrative where you were not at fault were not to be blamed and that this was and that you weren't alone. Yeah, absolutely. I would wholeheartedly agree with that because I know so many women that I know who, you know, when we were younger, we talk about these experiences that we had with different guys. And looking back on it now, I can say, oh my God, that was sexual assault. But none of us recognized that as sexual assault and would have even thought that way. And yet, you know, it, it's the consciousness of understanding that this is what sexual assault is and this is how serious the impacts can be. Um, people, something that I have been really firm with when talking with government and all of that is understanding how detrimental this trauma can actually be, how debilitating it is. There is a spectrum for this. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. But understanding that suicide is really a serious issue when it comes to unresolved trauma and knowing that there are people who are in mental health facilities because they have unresolved trauma, they never got the help that they needed when they needed it. They've been completely betrayed by 
not just um, their family and, and friendship circles, but also by any other kind of caregiver and institution who's failed to recognise the signs and, and failed to actually intervene and support them. So recovery is not something that everyone makes it through alive. Um, and that's something that we really, really need to address. You know, our organization, our community of survivors in the Engendered Collective, one of the things that is really important to us that we try to build is this culture of accountability. You know, we were talking about accountability earlier. It shows up in many different ways, right? You talked about the impact of the media and society and culture on shaping your own views towards what is consent, what is assault, what is being violated look like and having kind of normalized like the stranger danger narrative rather than the the person who is in our lives <laughs> that we trust um, more likely to be the person that's going to be the perpetrator and so for for us we we have come across lots of different sort of subsets within advocacy movements uh, that are trying to be trauma-informed, as they say, but in, in my opinion, tilting the trauma of the perpetrator, you know, tilting towards the trauma of the perpetrator more than of the victim. So using the trauma of the perpetrator, for example, if it's a man of color, I'm saying that systemic racism and poverty, which has devastated communities of color, have contributed to the violence that men in these communities enact uh, against the women. And therefore, to put that man in jail is inflicting additional trauma on the community. So I'm wondering, in your definition of accountability, what place does the trauma of the perpetrator have? You know, I, through my own experience and unpacking all of the things. <laughs> I have a lot of empathy for tra for people who've been through trauma of any kind, whether it's a car accident or sexual abuse. And I firmly believe that anyone who, who survives trauma does deserve to have access to resources that will help them resolve that, to engage in recovery. But that doesn't mean that you're also not accountable and responsible for what you did. If you go around committing rape because of a trauma that you experienced as a child, sure, we'll get you the help, I think, like my opinion is sure, have the help to recover from what you did because that might stop you from committing future crimes. But that doesn't mean you're also not responsible for what you did because you've inflicted a lot of pain. And the thing is, I want to say as well, it's not just the survivor, it's the people around the survivor who were also victimised. There are secondary victims there. So I want to say the impact on my partner, for instance, has been enormous. The impact to my family, the impact to a survivor's ability to maintain employment and even to obtain um, the services they need to actually just get through an average day is huge. And we do need accountability for that. And we need our justice systems to come along with us and actually understand fully how debilitating this trauma can be and really stop having such a blase attitude about what rape does to people. If you had your way, what would be 
the outcome for your perpetrator? Would it be jail? Would it be community corrections? For how long? Taking away what the law says, what would be accountability to you? Accountability for me would be, and this is something I explored quite a bit as I knew that we were going to be coming up to sentencing and even after that and trying to sort out how I felt about the sentencing. Um, For me, the punishment, so to speak, has to fit the crime. And what I found is that the justice system doesn't actually give you room to, you know, we have the opportunity to give a statement to the court as a survivor to tell them about the impact that the crime has had on us. But there are restrictions in what you can and can't say. So, for example, the court does not want to know that you now have a sexual dysfunction and you can't enjoy sex as a normal person uh, because every time someone touches you, you have a flashback or something like that. They don't want to know that. But what they do want to know about is the financial impact. So there's a really big problem there. And for me, it would be sitting down with that person in a facilitated way, so a restorative justice approach. And I would want them to really understand fully, not just intellectually, but, you know, a real embodiment of that understanding of the impact that their actions have had because it was very serious offending. They weren't stupid. They knew what they were doing. It was intentional actions. It wasn't just a, oh, we were both drunk. I mean, even then, that's not an excuse. But it wasn't like an accidentally, I did this by accident. Like, oh, I fell over and whoops, my penis went in here. (laughs) Um, These are actions that were chosen. There was a consciousness there. And not that I want them to be ashamed, because I think shame is so toxic and awful and not useful for so many things. I just want them to... um, understand what they did and be accountable for that. And that accountability can take the form of them working towards being a better member of the community. So I'm not sure precisely how that looks for me, but it might be something around like becoming an advocate or becoming part of a program that supports the education of our young men in understanding what rape looks like and understanding coercive behaviours and making sure they don't engage in it. So for many people, many survivors and advocates, the concept of, let me try to think, what's the phrase? Um, I guess the concept of remorse and regret and recognition that there was some behavior or choice that was made by the perpetrator that was wrong and harmful, that is based off of having a mindset of whether or not you think a set of behaviors are harmful or not in general. And for you to pick like a subset of those larger behaviors and say these things are wrong when the bigger picture, let's say sexism and misogyny, the mindset of sexism and misogyny is still there, is not going to be genuine because it's so hard to change someone's mindset. So many of the programs that people are in are about changing behavior. And a lot of advocates I've spoken with have said that changing behavior doesn't help unless the mindset's changed because then it's performative and they can repeat the behavior in other ways and just know better how to hide the intent. Yeah, I'd agree with that 100%. (laughs) 
So in terms of accountability, like you have this wish for there to be basically some sort of, it's change in behavior you're stating. Does it also include change in mindset? Absolutely. So, I mean, like you said, if you don't have the full consciousness and awareness around what you've done, first of all, you can't actually accept the accountability and responsibility because then it's just performative. You're just ticking a box. So you have to have accepted that. And I mean, that's not an easy thing to do as well. Like I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, (laughs) but like to think about something very serious, like a harm you've inflicted on someone else that's been so debilitating and so serious, that's not going to be a, a walk in the park to to unpack and fully like to have that embodied understanding of what's happened. Now, in my case, there were no serious mitigating factors, except that it was implied that he may have been on the um, autistic spectrum. But there was no confirm there was no confirmed reports and they weren't retested as an adult for the purpose of the court case, which I find really offensive that that was put forward as a mitigating factor. There has to be that awareness and understanding. You have to understand how sexism, how gender inequality works. And that would probably be a really big part of what I would want for perpetrators. Not, it's not appropriate for all perpetrators. I want to say as well, there are some who are very violent and will never change. And prison is exactly the right place for those people. But for people, say, like the perpetrator in my case, who grow up in the soup of patriarchy and gender inequality, they are told that they can be anything. They are given the world on a silver platter. There has to be some serious, for lack of a better word, deprogramming done. So in the absence of coordinated services, that exists today for deprogramming. We had a guest on the show who who was formerly incarcerated and he was actually on a documentary on CNN for teaching feminism to incarcerated men as a way to help bring about a consciousness and reduce recidivism. And it's apparently been very effective. It has positive results. And so in the absence of basically teaching feminism, which is teaching about patriarchy and how they have been socialized and also to, um, and duped by, by patriarchy to embody these certain traits and behaviors, in the absence of that, what else can we do now as we work towards that? Uh, I think in Australia, we've taken some steps forward in having an awareness. We've gone absolutely gangbusters on talking about domestic and family violence. And our governments have made a lot more funding available for services that support survivors and perpetrators of that. But sexual violence is often lumped into the same basket. And my issue with that is I I don't want to take away from what our domestic and family violence services do because that is extremely necessary, very worthy work and deeply valuable. But sexual violence doesn't always happen in the context of domestic. And sexual violence, you know, well, there's it's a Venn diagram between the two with a lot of crossover, but they can they're still separate issues. There's still separate things that happen. And 
the funding for sexual violence um, programs, whether it's for perpetrators or survivors, is a pittance. It's it's left so far behind, and yet sexual violence is is just as rampant as domestic and family, possibly even more so. In Australia, the statistic is like one in three girls are going to experience it before they turn 15. And between the ages of 15 and 25, it's one in five. So it's really high. Um, and for our Indigenous women, it's it's seven times at a minimum higher than it is for white women, which is appalling. So we need to as much as we've started to have those conversations and started to report on this and having those public discourses and those inquiries, first of all, if there's no, there's no actual follow through with our Royal commissions and inquiries, what's the point? So the recommendations are made all the time, (laughs) but very, at least very rarely, um, I've not seen a whole lot of laws changed. Our family law courts haven't changed. There's still huge problems there. And part of the issue is a complete culture shock. So we change, sorry, not shock. We have the education component where our kids are educated at school about what a respectful relationship is and maybe where we can spot unhealthy or toxic behaviour in its early stages. We're getting a little bit better at that. It still needs improving. But we also need the justice system to come along for the ride. They have to, I think we have to incentivize people to change and to learn and to behave differently. An example of this might be it is easier for you to engage in therapy, whatever that looks like, whether it's group, solo, or maybe it's horse therapy, (laughs) whatever it is. It's easier and more beneficial for you to do that than it is for you to continue perpetrating these crimes because the justice system will come down like a ton of bricks on you. So the incentive is there for you to do that. And also to have, I think we've got this um, thing going on at the moment with COVID where we say how important social workers are. And the solution is just put more social workers in the, in places. But the thing is those social workers can only do so much if the programs they're referring all of their clients to are underfunded and under-resourced. <laughs> So we need to really invest in people and understand the cross-section of violence with poverty, with disability, with all of these other issues. And I think a big one in Australia is understanding how race and poverty really come into it and looking at how do we how do we mitigate that? Do perpetrators is are they offending because they have such low self-esteem? What where does that stem from? Do they need a skill set. What did what was missing in their childhood? Because I think not all the time, but there are many cases where you can look at a perpetrator and look at their life and go, yeah, okay, you had issues at school, you didn't have the help you needed. Okay, how do we get you that now? How do we nip this at the root cause? How do we do that? Really getting to the, the bottom of this rather than treating just the symptoms. In terms of language, you've used the word perpetrator consistently in our conversation so far, and you also talked about restorative justice for your sexual assault experience, and 
I know that myself and many people in the domestic violence community are very much against restorative justice for domestic violence because of the pattern of ongoing power and control and the language that's being used in restorative justice. So for example, you might have heard of the term person who does harm. I've heard recently person who chooses violence. (laughs) Uh, This is for domestic violence person responsible. In another setting, I heard the phrase, and it wasn't clear if they were talking about the perpetrator and the victim or both, but people involved in domestic abuse or domestic violence. And so all of those terms are not gendered. So it's not clear who the gender of the perpetrator is and the gender of the victim. And it's about the act rather than the pattern. So, you know, we we understand that we don't want to stigmatize people. So we don't want to define them by certain behaviors or traits if they're not that, right? But speaking as a survivor of domestic violence and coercive control, I want that language to be transparent. And so when people take away the word abuser from me, or a perpetrator from me, even the perpetrator is more of a legal term, I think that's minimizing. And I wanted to know what your perspective is, because you clearly kept using the word perpetrator and you, you know, which is a, which is a term that prioritizes accountability. Yeah, I didn't know what to call them for a long time. <laughs> I was really stuck and I would go to like doctor's appointments or I'd have to have some sort of interaction and they would be like, so what happened? Who's the person? And I would have to sort of explain because I didn't have the words. And for me, the real shift came when I understood that the shame wasn't mine and I didn't have to be ashamed of what happened to me anymore. And thank God for Brene Brown's work because that was pivotal for me. (laughs) Perpetrator for me is a way that I can identify this person. I'm only identifying them in the context of this. I understand that they're a full, whole and complete, com- complex person. Um, I want to provide a bit of information here. So the perpetrator in this case, I've unfortunately been abused by many different people, but this particular case, they are a business owner. They're active in their community. They have a family. So they have parents, they have siblings, they have children who are very young. They enjoy different hobbies. They're talented at different things. They are a full, whole and complete and complex person just like me. And I use the word perpetrator because I'm speaking directly to a set of behaviors that they need to be accountable for. I have no issue with any other part of their life. If they wanted to uh, dress up in drag and and that was their thing, fine. That's got nothing to do with the behaviors that they've um, perpetrated against me. Also, it's, I find it's not a gendered term either. So that's also very helpful given that we have such a beautiful, diverse world now where we're really open to all of that. But I find I don't really like the line of saying we're too politically correct now, but if someone was to take away those words from me and say, no, no, it's person who chooses violence I understand that that's a person first language, but it's also for me, and I think for many survivors, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I know for a lot of us, taking a word the way offender or perpetrator or abuser 
isn't helpful because sometimes I think as well for survivors, we need to, but for me, I found the more often that I said those words, the more it sunk in that this was not my shame. This was not my thing to be responsible for. It was theirs. And it helped to create those boundaries, those personal boundaries. And also reinforcing that someone did choose this and we're only looking at the scope of this. We're not looking at, I don't know, their sporting record, (laughs) for example. I'm glad you brought up Brene Brown because I was in a uh, conversation recently with a group of women who identify as feminist. And I was talking about this piece that I was in the process of writing now, having written and published on Medium, about accountability. And one part of it addresses this concept of shame, because I think that in the piece, I talk about how shame maybe we need to have more shame with regard to bad behavior like domestic violence (laughs) because we twist ourselves in a pretzel to use words to minimize it and mask it, which then ends up masking the negative impact on the victims and survivors. And so this person in this conversation um, said, oh, we can't do that because Brené Brown says shame is bad. And please listen to this podcast. So I did. I listened to the podcast on shame that she came, you know, came up with recently. I, she's had many, many conversations about it in the past, I know. But in this most recent one, there was a piece where she says, you know, we shouldn't use shame on, for example, in domestic violence. It was like illust- to illustrate her point. Because if you use shame on an abuser, he will take it out on the woman. And you know, oh, yeah. abuse more. I'm aware more, of the examples right? that she uses for this. Yeah, and I just thought, wait a minute, why? You know, so we're not going to call out the person for that person's behavior because they might do more harm to us. But why isn't he in jail? <laughs> why is he not in jail so that he won't abuse the woman in his life more? Was my first thought, and the second thought was then we should be rewarding everybody for their bad behavior. We shouldn't be calling out employers because they might fire us. We shouldn't be calling out, you know, white people for their racism because they're going to, or police officers, because they're going to beat us up more or arrest us more wrongly. Like then we shouldn't call out anybody for anything because that's just going to get them to do more bad things. And I just thought the logic was just so backwards. I I see exactly where you're coming from on this because this particular example had a really big impact on me, but it really helped me separate shame and guilt. And I don't, I understand shame is is somewhat useful in low doses and very rarely, (laughs) but I think you know the example Brene gives of of that judge in Texas who who made perpetrators of domestic violence like they were publicly shamed in really just really poor taste and very appalling ways i if i had to walk around my city with a sign that said i had hit someone or i had crushed my car into someone whatever of course you would be deeply ashamed and then engage in toxic behaviors I can see how that would perpetrate the problem, like perpetuate it, sorry. Um, But then we do have to have accountability and accountability and guilt, I think, go very well together because it addresses the behavior. 
it doesn't say that you're a bad person. It says the behavior is a problem. So it's, you know, it, it, and again, that's why I use the language that I do because it's addressing the behavior. I don't want people to feel like they're intrinsically bad. <laughs> you know, I just want to make clear in my piece, I was talking more about societal norms. It should be shameful to be a rapist. It should be shameful to be a domestic abuser. And if you engage in these behaviors, you should feel ashamed, which has nothing to do with the tactics of how we shame someone. Like I certainly would not believe in dehumanizing someone in a public way in that forum, which is different than making it a norm that it's not okay to engage in these behaviors. And if you do, you should feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I think in Australia, we do have a real hatred of rapists and wife beaters, as we like to call them. And a real, it's a really visceral hatred. And it's, it's all over our newspapers all the time. But the thing is, it's, all, it, it's a toxic shame. It's a real, it's not a helpful level of shame. It's really quite detrimental, I think, to people being able to feel like they can come forward and say, look, I've got a problem with anger and I, I can't stop myself from lashing out. Or I think that I may have crossed a line with my partner the other month and I need to talk to someone about it. When we are so hell-bent on shaming people, like we're going to stop them from feeling like they can actually reach out as well. So I think there's a there's a balance that has to be struck and that has to also come from the media in understanding the impact of what they write and how they write it. And it's got to go beyond I need the clicks <laughs> and I need to sell the papers and the articles. It's also what you've got to look at the ethics of how things are reported. I mean, we certainly don't have that level of stigmatizing here in the US, but I think also just processing it as a sort of media consumer, it seems like it's also a tactic, not really because they're trying to shame these certain groups of people for their behaviors, but they're actually trying to use it as an excuse not to call out what's normalized as a whole in society. And so you're like basically taking it out on these groups of people who are these individuals that are named, who are arrested, I'm guessing, and publicly available to be called out rather than calling out all of us and spreading the blame equally because we all participate in, to some extent, you know, either consciously or unconsciously in perpetuating the sexism or internalized sexism that we have been ingrained with. And so it's about being conscious of it and calling it out on our own as a daily practice. And so it may be a way of not having to do that, a way of avoiding it. Yeah. And that's genuinely why I use the word perpetrator, but also I think it's really important that we call an apple an apple. My my stepdad has a really He's, he's just great with analogies, very, very dad-like. And he goes, you got to call an apple an apple. You can't call it an orange. It's not an orange. You can't do it. It doesn't make sense. So I think we have to be blunt to a point. And I mean, I've got no problem putting my hand up and saying, I survived rape. I survived very serious sexual abuse and domestic violence. And we have to call it that. People have a real visceral response to the word rape, but that's something that we also have to unpack as a culture and understand what rape actually looks like. Because when we, people say that they expect it to be really violent and there are cases where it absolutely is, 
But we have to understand that actually it's, in, in most cases, it's far more subtle and really understanding what that looks like. And it is accountability in another format, I think. The language that we use is so, so important when we talk about sexual violence. Yeah, and especially when it comes to child sexual abuse, right, or child prostitution. Uh, you know, there's a lot of language where it casts the child as somehow the conniving, you know, seductress of the person who's the buyer of prostitution, the John. And the language that the media offers is very much about, oh, this person had sex with, you know, an underage person. But no, this person raped a child. Yes. And that's, um, that's actually something that's really important to me is that we actually, we actually call it out for what it is. We don't have to exaggerate it, but we do need to say exactly what it is. You have to name the thing. It's, it's that scene in Harry Potter with Hermione saying, you know, fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself. We have to name the monster. We have to name the beast because then we can start to build an understanding and a relationship to it. And it's, you know, I think naming it, is also quite freeing for survivors and can be quite freeing for perpetrators if they're willing to go there. So if they're willing to actually say, oh shit, that was rape and I did that, that can be very helpful for having that clarity and be like, oh, okay, I can understand this now in that framework. Yes. So before we close our conversation, I wanted to ask you about one last concept that I know survivors struggle with a lot in their recovery process, and that's forgiveness. What role does forgiveness have in healing, if any? That's such a big question, isn't it? (laughs) For me personally, forgiveness really came hand in hand with unpacking the shame and the guilt and the blame because I had carried that around and internalized it so much for so long. And it was a serious, it's been a lifelong process for me to try and unpack that and understand it. And then also to be able to forgive myself for, you know, I didn't always behave very well. (laughs) I responded in the the way a, a traumatized child would respond to situations, which wasn't always very gracious and forgiving myself for also not knowing, not having the consciousness or the resources to be able to extricate myself from different situations or seek the help that I needed when I needed it. There's so much work there for me. And that's what forgiveness is for me. Having said that, (laughs) I also think forgiveness is partially commercialized now. Uh, We have an unregulated wellness industry that capitalizes on unresolved trauma and markets forgiveness as an outcome of a high-end, high-ticket coaching package that you can purchase for the low, low price of $25,000. And that's a real issue for me is watching that play out, knowing that it's unregulated, knowing that what little regulation there is, is um, usually self-governed. So there's very little accountability there. And I've seen and experienced myself, I've seen survivors go through those programs and with those practitioners and they are shamed for not reaching that outcome of being able to forgive themselves or a perpetrator. So 
they're told that, look, oh, you just weren't ready or you weren't playing full on, you didn't accept responsibility for your part in this. And for some people that approach sort of will work. I don't understand how, but for some people it does. But I see so many survivors go through those programs and processes that just more deeply entrench the shame. And even when they have the freedom to spend their money where they choose to, because they're promised these results, they're promised that they will be able to forgive and forget and move on with their life when the practitioner has no understanding of trauma, no understanding of mental health, no training, by the way, (laughs) and they don't screen for it, (laughs) then they can't refer for it either. And then they end up with clients who are suicidal or their mental health, you know, they end up in a crisis. So I take issue with commercialized forgiveness and If there's one thing I would say to all survivors, it's that forgiveness might work for you. It might not. It's something you're going to have to explore for yourself. It's individual. The way that we all respond and heal and recover from trauma is individual. It's okay if that's part of what you need to do for yourself. It's also okay if it's not. If you don't want to forgive, you don't have to. No pressure. Well, thank you, Alyssa, for sharing your story and uh, your journey with us today. I would like to leave you with one recommendation that I found when you were speaking. There's so many parallels to what your experience was and what I read in this book. Have you heard of Know My Name by Chanel Miller? I am halfway through it. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? (laughs) I could listen. She's got the most wonderful voice and she's got such a magic way with words that I... I just, you know, I was listening to this as I was going through my own court experiences and I was like, yep, I felt like that. Yep, that happened. I I get that. And hearing survivor stories is so important as well. And it's really important that we have the ability to choose if, when, and how we ever want to tell our story. Well, I'm so glad that you're listening to it and you have access to it because it was so amazing for me when you were talking about the collateral damage, the impact on the relationships outside of the survivor herself, just the circle of the family, the friends, the employers, you know, all of those people, I thought that was so beautifully articulated. And hopefully, it'll be a tool for other people to have to be more compassionate and empathetic with survivors and with our struggles, you know, that we we might not that our healing or our journey of healing might not look like what they want it to look like and that it's okay. So I thank you again for being on the show and I look forward to sharing this amazing episode with our listeners. Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate all of the work that you do. It's, it's so needed and deeply valued. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.